All right. Well, as you know, last week there was quite a few of us that were gone because of the the wild weather that the Lord brought our way. And uh, so I just want you to know at the outset that I'm uh, aware of that, sensitive to it, um, because we just began our new sermon series on 1 Thessalonians last week. And so it's a little hard to begin a sermon series on a week when quite a few people are gone, but we did it. And uh, But my hope is is to design the sermon in a way that's going to kind of bring everybody along. Even if you weren't here, it would kind of bring you along and help us all get started off on the right foot together um, on this new sermon series. Um, before um, I pray, I want, to, I want to have these two questions in your mind, okay? Two questions. One, what do you want to be known for? I you really think about that. What do you want to be known for? And then a related question, but different. What do you think God wants you to be known for? Because the reality is, is oftentimes because we are trying to live out our Christian life in a fallen world, sometimes our answer to those two questions are not always the same. And so one of my prayers for our time together is that God, what God wants us to be known for would become more and more what we want to be known for. And so I want to actually pray for that one more time before, uh, before we begin and we hear the word. So pray, pray with me. Lord, that is our desire. And I know these brothers and sisters, they want their lives to be conformed to your word. We all have our own struggles, our own weaknesses, our own sin tendencies. But Lord, we know that greater is he in us than he who is in the world. So would you help us, Lord, as we draw near to you in your word? Would your spirit move among us? And Lord, we pray that you'd give us clarity today on what you want us to be known for and that that would consume our desire for what we want to be known for. So let that ring in our hearts, Lord. Define it for us through your word as it's unfolded. In Jesus' name, amen. So before giving you the outline, I just want to give you a really brief kind of overview of the text because I think it will just help us to just kind of see how the text flows, kind of have it in your mind a little bit, and then and then uh, get into the actual uh, flow of the sermon itself. And so one basic way to kind of track the flow of the text is to think about these three phrases. Uh, what, what we know, what you know, and what everybody knows. Okay? That's, that's a simple way to think through the text. You can actually see the phrase, some of the phrases here. Um, if you look at verse 4, it says, For we know, brothers. And then in midway through verse 5, it says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you. And then the whole rest of the passage is about what everybody else seems to know. And so, um, so we saw last week that what they say, well, what, what, do, what do we know? Paul, Silas, Silvanus, right? Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they knew, and it, what they express here is that they're convinced that these Thessalonians, they're the real deal that their faith is real, that they're the beloved of God, that they're the elect chosen people of God. And they give a couple really good reasons for that. One is the supernatural way that they received and responded to the gospel, right? The simple gospel of Christ was proclaimed to them, right? These missionaries came in and told them that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that they are liable to the judgment, the wrath of God. 
and the Holy Spirit so worked in their hearts that they actually believed them, right? They agreed with God about their sin and the judgment to come. And they told them about a savior, right? A deliverer that Christ was provided for them to take the punishment they deserved, to bear the wrath that they deserved. And he rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. And even now he is extending this promise of eternal life to whoever would turn to him in faith. They just came proclaiming these simple facts about Jesus. But the reality was, is the reason why they're so convinced that these Thessalonians are the real deal is because when the gospel came, it didn't just come like, oh, that's an interesting thing you're telling me. It landed in power. The Holy Spirit gave them a childlike faith to believe the truths that were being uh, taught to them and proclaimed to them. But there's another reason, and that's that there's abundant fruit in their lives, right? Remember those three beautiful phrases, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope, And you could go on through the passage too, um, even dipping into the first part of our passage today. It talks about when you you receive the word in much affliction, in the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see that there in verse six. And so they see so much grace in the the Thessalonians' lives. And uh, so they're saying, you are the real deal. That's what we know, right? We know that you're the real deal for these reasons, okay? Um, And then, the text goes on to t- describe what you know. And so it's talking about what the Thessalonians know. See that phrase again in uh, middle of verse five? You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So the basic logic is something like this. Um, you know something about us, and or we know something about you, and you know something about us. We know that you're the real deal, and we're convinced of it. And come on, you know that we're the real deal. Like we preached the gospel faithfully, but not just that. We didn't just come to you preaching a faithful gospel. We we came living what we preached before your eyes. And that's going to be very important to our passage today. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you. The kind of example that we gave to you. That's the sense of it. And then, so what we know, what you know, and what everybody knows. Okay, so what we're going to see through the flow of the text is This transformation that has happened in the Thessalonians doesn't stay. What happens in Thessalonica doesn't stay in Thessalonica, right? The word spreads abroad to uh, Macedonia and Achaia and everywhere, virtually everywhere. And so this report just spreads throughout the lands, okay? And uh, so that's the basic flow of the text. I think you kind of got the sense of it, but I want to personalize it a little bit more. I want to speak in terms of Three things that God wants you to have from a text like this, okay? It's not just about what God was doing in the Thessalonians. It's about what God is doing in his people even right now in our day. So three things God wants you to have, all right? The first thing is this. He wants you to have strong assurance, okay? He wants you to have strong assurance. It's possible. You know, when I say assurance, you know what I mean by that? like assurance of salvation, where you're convinced that you know deep to the core of your being that you are a child of God, that you're on your way to glory, that you're confident, and you get to live confidently in that every single day. God uh, wants us to have strong assurance. Now, it's possible for someone to have false assurance 
and it's possible to have a well-founded assurance. Okay? Um, God wants his people to have a well-founded assurance. He wants his people to know that they are the real deal. And some of you were brought up in a religious context where you were taught that you can never know whether or not you're truly saved. And you have to live kind of on that teeter-totter every single day depending on what you're doing, right? But the reality is, is that, you know, there's whole books of the Bible that are written so that we would know. For example, uh, you can go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. That is like the purpose statement of the book of 1 John, right? I'm writing these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life, okay? So it's, it's a powerful thing to have assurance. God means for his people to be assured. And, uh, but we have to ask the question, what should make us confident? Like, what are the proper grounds for assurance? Now, we saw in the text, and I was just alluding to it, um, especially from last week, but I want to bring us along since some of us were not here last week because of the weather. Um, Paul expressed the confidence that you're elect, you're the real people of God. One, because how you received the gospel, right? In other words, how you believed in these truths about Jesus, right? That's one aspect of assurance, but the other one is the fruit in their lives. Like they themselves could see what God's doing and go, this ain't me. <laughs> like this wasn't me before. Something has shifted in my soul. And so there's something about looking at the, at the fruit that goes, okay, it's not, it's not every bit of assurance, but it's part of, of assurance. And so that's why Paul's so confident and that's why they can be confident. And Paul's saying it for a reason, right? He's not saying it just for his own sake. He doesn't have to write a letter for that, right? He's expressing it because he knows that God wants his people to walk with strong assurance. That's why these things are being said. God wants that for you as well. So those kind of two reasons. Um, and uh, so the spirit-enabled reception of the gospel and also the fruit of that gospel playing out in their lives, fruits of faith, love, hope, joy. And, um, you know, one way I heard, heard it put before is that, you know, the confidence comes in part from a change of status, like Christ for you, and a change of na nature, Christ in you. Okay, so a status, we are now righteous in Christ. We have a new standing before God and a good standing before God, acceptable to him because of what Christ did, because of his finished work. But also Christ in us, like working through us by the spirit and what he produces is part of that assurance. And um, so um, I want to give you an analogy that might help thinking about assurance on this point. Think about assurance as kind of like a three-legged stool, okay? There's more than one aspect of how God reassures his people and part of how he wants to strengthen our assurance. And so there's three parts of it, okay? Um, the first is the finished work of Christ. And this is the more ultimate one, okay? Is that we can be assured of our salvation if we are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We'll never stand before God on the basis of our own merits and we'll never ultimately stand before God because we bore a certain amount of fruit, right? Our ultimate standing before God comes because we are united to the fruitful one, because we are united to the one who lived a life perfectly of good works, right? One sense you could say, I'm saved by good works, just not mine, 
right? Jesus lived a perfect life. He died the death that we deserve. When we put our trust in Christ, when we put our trust in Christ, our sin goes on him. His righteousness is credited to our account. That's why we can wake up every day in Christ going, I'm acceptable in the beloved, okay? There's a lot of confidence to be had there, to look to Christ, right? And to see why we can have that kind of assurance. So we have to remind ourselves often of the finished work of Jesus Christ and where our righteousness comes from, amen? Okay, there's another aspect though, and that's the Spirit's fruit, okay? The Spirit produces fruit in our lives, right? Every genuine born-again Christian will bear fruit, right? Jesus would say some 30-fold, some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, right? There might be different degrees of fruit bearing, okay, but there will be fruit in the Christian life. Good fruit, I have to say, in the Christian life. Um, and so that's very important. That's part of how God wants us to reassure, wants to reassure us is um, like if we want to tell our child that, hey, you're growing, and we point at something that we're seeing in their lives, they go, oh, wow, I'm growing. There's a certain reassurance, a certain encouragement that comes from that. Same thing with the children of God. When these things happen and God points them out, that's God saying, look what I'm doing in you. Look, look at the fruit of your union with my son. Look what my spirit is bearing in your life. It's deeply encouraging, right? And um, the third one, is the Spirit's kind of more direct personal witness, right? It talks about this in Romans 8. The Spirit bears witness to our spirit that I'm a child of God. So sometimes there's just this direct, it's hard to put words to a reality like this because it's, it's just kind of an experiential reality. It's hard to put words to, but the Scripture says the Spirit bears witness to our spirit. And I've had times like that where it's just like, the Spirit, it's almost like cutting through everything else, just speaking directly to my spirit going, you're mine. You belong to me. You used to be a slave to sin, but now you belong. You've been ransomed. You're, you are a child of God. And that's why your heart cries, Abba, Father. Okay? So the Spirit's direct witness, the fruit that comes from our union with God by the Spirit, and the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the three-legged soul. If you're saying, I want to grow in assurance, well, those that'll give you your roadmap. Those are areas of focus where we grow. And I just want to say this, a couple of practical things before I leave this point, that God wants us to have strong assurance. It's not always automatic, okay? Experientially, there are some that come out of the womb as Christians, you know, um, not out of their mother's womb, but like, like metaphorically speaking, you're born again, you're a brand new believer, and you don't really remember a day where you didn't, you weren't confident. You know, that's some people's experience but I also know some of you struggle deeply with assurance, right? And so I just want you to know that you're not crazy, right? That's a fairly normal experience in the Christian life. It's not always automatic, and God sometimes deepens people's assurance over time, right? And uh, so it might not all come at once, and so it can, in a sense, be confirmed over time, and your confidence can grow um, as you pay attention to these those three things. And so you're you're trying to remember the finished work of Christ and put your confidence ultimately there. But you're also desiring, I want to bear more fruit in my life because that's one way that God reminds me that I'm his. I want to, and also, I don't want to do things that are going to quench the Holy Spirit in my life because it's awfully hard to hear the inward witness when we're constantly quenching the Holy Spirit, right? And so the Spirit does want to minister that to us and wants us to live with that kind of assurance. And maybe another way to think about it is like, 
when it comes to our justification, our right standing before God, if you were going to put this on a chart, okay, like there would be just this line. Usually a flat line is not good when you're looking at a chart, especially if you're in the hospital or something, I think. But um, like the flat line, like it's, it's the stable variable. It doesn't change, right? Because it's not on the basis of you, right? It's on the basis of him and what he's done. That doesn't change, right? Our justification, our standing before God doesn't change. But our assurance does fluctuate, right? And so if we're living in sin and we're doing things that are crippling our consciences, our consciences are meant to be the Christian's best friend, right? If we're doing that, that can hinder our assurance, in a sense, by design, right? Because if we're living in sin, it does let a lot of doubt in, right? And so God doesn't want us to live that way, but we need to recognize that that's, that's kind of how it works. And so God would have us seek to nurture and cultivate this sense of assurance. You know, think the three-legged school, but, you know, maybe one text just to have in your mind. If you're taking notes, maybe you want to write down um, 2 Peter chapter 1, where it says things like this. I'm looking at verse 5. I think that's a good place to start here. Um, It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Think of fruits, right? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he's been cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God wants you to have strong assurance a well-founded assurance. You don't have to make stuff up to feel better. There's plenty to go on here, but um, to be able to say he wants to provide a way that's richly paved for you on your way to glory. And so he's given us the things that we need to cultivate assurance in our life. And so I hope that's instructive and encouraging for you to know that God wants this for you. He wants you to have strong assurance. There's another thing though. I'm not done that he wants you to have. He wants you to have worthy examples, okay? This is another thing we see in this text. He wants us to have worthy examples. As I said, the, the, the logic before, like we know something about you and you know something about us, right? The apostles and the, the missionaries are saying, we know something about you. You know something about us. You know that we know you're the real deal. You know that we're the real deal. Look at the second part of verse five. It says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you um, for your sake. And it says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I love the, the really literal logic of the end of verse 5. Like, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake? It could be like, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you? We were among you for you. (laughs) Like, among you for you. That's a literal sense of it. It's like, we were there for you. 
in every way. We were there so that you could hear this message and be converted. And we stayed there after you heard it and you were converted because you needed someone to look up to when you woke up, you know, from being the sleeping dead, right? When you came up out of your sin and you believed in the Lord Jesus, you need someone to look up to. And we were right there when you woke up. And uh, so think about it, you know, you get, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about um, Daniel and Sam introducing to us uh, little Timothy today. This is his debut at FBC. And uh, it's just precious, right? And so just a little over a week ago, he was born, right? He was born and then immediately placed into the arms of loving Christian parents. And he can just look up at them. He's got someone to look up to right away, right? This is what the Lord has done for his people, Right? They're born again, and then he puts them in the arms of people. God willing, this is the way it's supposed to be, right, church? Puts them into the arms of people that they can look up to, right? That they can look up to, that they can grow up to, that they can pattern their lives after. That's the idea. That's the gift um, that that we're meant to have. And so you see that word there in verse 6, and you became imitators of us. This is really beautiful. This word imitators, it's where we get the word mimic. You ever say like, they mimic you? My kids do this sometimes. They'll walk around and start repeating every single thing I say. And after about 45 minutes, you're going a little crazy, you know? But the idea is, is like they, they mimic you. They copy you, right? They, they're pattering their words after you. So to be imitators is to be one who duplicates the example, right? Um, think about like a prototype, like in a factory, if you have, you have the prototype, you have that initial pattern made, right? And then everything else that comes is meant to be patterned after that, right? And so to be imitators is to recognize, okay, wow, that's worthy to be patterned after. And then you pattern your life after them. Paul's saying, uh, Paul, Timothy, and Silas are saying, you've become imitators of us. We were right there for you, right? When you came out of the womb spiritually, but you looked up at us, we were right there for you, and you have become imitators of us. We are meant to learn by imitating others. This is how God has designed the Christian life. This is a major theme in the New Testament. Um, It's a major theme in Paul's letters. In fact, he's constantly pointing to other examples. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. He's saying, follow Jesus. He's pointing at Christ. He's pointing at other co-workers that he has. Keep a close watch um, on, on us and on others who walk according to the example that you have in us. So he's pointing at Timothy and Epaphroditus and all kinds of other godly saints. He's saying, hey, here's some examples worthy of emulation. God wants us to have worthy examples. The local church is meant to be filled with examples, right? We talked about this um, maybe last week or the week before when, you know, just basically saying like, hey, one, Jesus is the total package. You can look to him and see everything that you need to become mature, right? But he wanted us to have living, breathing, walking, talking, flesh and blood examples, you know, that mimic him um, in our midst, right? And so um, all of us are fallen, right? As we mature in Christ, uh, we represent him better and better and more clearly, more fully, um, but not none of us will be the total package. And so in the body of Christ, it's helpful to be able to look at examples in the body and, and often multiple examples to, uh, to grow and to imitate. You know, this is so important to say because 
We live in a culture that just absolutely idolizes the self, right? Our culture just worships the self. It's all about how you can express yourself and be true to yourself, right? And it all comes back to, that's like the highest virtue in our culture, really, at this point. But it so flies in the face of this call to biblical, godly imitation of others. It's just like, no, just trying to be this truest expression of yourself. Like, no, you actually have to learn godliness by looking outward, outward, right? You come out of the womb and you only look to yourself, guess how big you're going to stay? <laughs> you know, guess what you're going to look like your whole life? I mean, you're not going to change. You're not going to grow, right? We need these other examples. God has designed us to learn from others. And there's a certain humility that it takes to do that. Because what are you saying if, you, if you're learning from others? You're saying you don't have all that it takes in yourself, right? Self, there's that word again, right? You don't have it in yourself, so you have to look elsewhere to get it, and God provides it. And um, so we have to acknowledge that we don't have all that virtue in others. We lack virtues that other people have, and God wants us to see, and that's true for all of us, and we all need to grow by looking at those examples. And Karn and I were talking about this, how even like the best writers, the best artists, it doesn't start, and even though a lot of our schools nowadays just want to be like, okay, blank piece of paper, start expressing yourself. Like write the essay, express, just do it. And it's like, how about you let them read something that's good and someone that's been writing for a while, like a good example of good writing, let them read that a lot and just keep reading good stuff, and then let them start practicing, right? And as they don't lose their individuality, but they learn the foundations. And then it's a better time to express the the uniqueness of yourself, right? But the start is people try to do that from the ground up. (laughs) I don't want to read that essay, you know? I don't want to hear your (laughs) self-expression, right? There's enough self-expression today, right? Oh, so... Glad I got that off my chest. <laughs> okay. Um, so we we want to kind of adopt this among you, for you mindset. Like in the Christian life, we want to realize, like we want to look at each other and we want to be examples to one another. Like I'm here for you. A new believer comes in the fold, like we're here for you, right? You need examples. We're going to, we want to be here when you wake up, you know? Uh, we want to be the one that you can look your eyes up to. Um, we want to point you to other good examples. We are among you for you, right? That's our mindset. That was the apostolic mindset. We want to model that. We want to labor to see Christ formed in others. That should just be our longing. You know, we're going to do whatever it takes to see Christ formed in others, just as they're going to do the same in our lives. And so by way of application, I really want to encourage us to feel the responsibility to be a good example, right? To feel the personal responsibility to be a good example. And for parents, this is not just for your own children, right? Yes, by all means, let's fight to be a good example to our children, right? Uh, But we want to be examples to our brothers and sisters that we get to influence. We want to be examples that people that can look up to um, in different ways, different virtues in our lives. It is a gift, isn't it, to have worthy examples? This is such a gift. This is such a gift that God would bestow these things in our lives. Like I, I said that I wasn't trying to just be cute using Timothy as an example. 
I think it is such a mercy of God that this little boy was born to Daniel and Sam. Like out of the womb, he gets to look up to them. You know, I'm thankful that your children, you know, are your children and they get to look up, you know, to you. But I'm also just thankful that God's put us in a local church that can take discipleship seriously so that when my kids look up, they're not just looking up, they can look around, right? And a lot of people have this among you, for you mindset. And we're not the only ones that are there for our kids because God wants all of us to be examples. But we praise God for the examples that we have. And so again, I ask you, who are your examples, right? Several weeks ago, I said, uh, who are your wax molds, right? In a different example. But this just shows you, this is everywhere in the New Testament. It's just everywhere. And so I want to get the proportion right in the New Testament. So I'll just keep beating the drum as it shows up in these texts because this is meant to be the stuff of the Christian life. This is not just an accessory. This is the stuff of the Christian life. We are meant to imitate others in Christ and we are meant to grow to be examples worthy of imitation because God wants us to have worthy examples and to be worthy examples. So I encourage us, keep imitating godly examples around you. Um, You're never too old to imitate um, ideas and patterns that you see in other people's lives. One of the sisters wisely mentioned in our Sunday school this morning that, you know, she's saying, well, I came a believer a little later on in life. And she's just like, I feel like there's people that I'm older than that are more mature than me spiritually. And she's like, so I look to other people, even if they're, you know, not older than me to example. I said, amen. Amen. That's why Paul could say to young Timothy, set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Right. Um, like be, be someone that people can look up to. And, uh, so this is a beautiful thing, a beautiful instinct. And you've heard the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Um, it's hard. It is hard to, to learn different things. It's hard to change certain patterns and tendencies in our lives, especially when they're deeply ingrained. But do you think God really gives no hope to the person that's saved when they're 65? Well, God has given his word and he's given examples and they might be 25 years old that they get to look to in part, you know, all kinds of different examples in the body of Christ to help people grow. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. It's not impossible. It's hard, but humility goes a really long way. It goes a really long way. So God wants us to have strong assurance. He wants us to have worthy examples. You see his care for us. And he wants us to have good reputations. This is the final point. He wants us to have good reputations. Do you notice the life cycle of godliness that's here? Let's look at verse seven, okay? Back up to verse six, it says, um, but you became imitators of us. And now look at verse seven. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You became an example. Do you see the life cycle thing there? Okay, it started with Paul and these missionaries being there, being examples worthy of imitation. Now they're imitators of them. And now they themselves are examples worthy of imitation. Can you see how this is meant to go? This is the life cycle in the Christian life. This is the life cycle in the Christian church. This is what we're, we're fighting tooth and nail for, to be this as a church. 
Because really, if the spiritual health of the church depends on it, the witness of the church depends on it, the integrity of our gospel depends on it in so many ways. And um, our growth in godliness depends on us being able to, to do this. And so you became imitators, and now you became an example to all the believers. And so here's my exhortation. Keep the cycle going. God, people being an example to you, keep imitating them, but be an example to others so that this cycle can keep rolling on. And um, yeah, be examples to those who will become examples. Beautiful thing happening here. Now there's this phrase that's used um, as we look at this next section, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth, hold on to that in your mind, sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. It's pretty cool. So sounded forth. This is where we get the word echo from, the same idea, this term. Um, So this ongoing sound, this kind of reverberation, I can't help but think, I can tell I'm getting a little bit older, you guys. So you remember that Ricola commercial? Ricola, yeah. Right, they got that big horn, right, in the valleys. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to impersonate this right now. Um, but, you know, like, they they make the sound, and it echoes down through the valleys, and it just keeps going and going and going. That's what's happening here, right? We look what, look what God did in your lives, right? Now you're patterning your lives after us, and now tons of people can follow your example And your example is being published far and wide. The report has spread. Macedonia, Achaia, virtually everywhere, right? So where did the report travel? Well, first of all, what are they reporting? What's being echoed and sounded for? I think you could kind of, it's, it's kind of a, a, a both and here, right? The word of the Lord is sounded forth, but then it says your faith in God, right? And I think those two things go together. Like the gospel tends to fly further when there's people being transformed, right? And so the more people that are transformed, the further the gospel keeps going, right? And so that example, as it reverberates, right, um, the gospel kind of goes along with it and, and is being communicated with it. So it's like the gospel is spreading and deepening more broadly and also news of how that gospel transformed them is spreading more broadly, right? The fact that they have been transformed and now are living, breathing, walking, talking examples of what they saw. And for example, the Apostle Paul, this news has spread far and wide. And how far? Well, Macedonia, Achaia, so the northern and southern Greece, okay? And this is powerful because it stretches hundreds and hundreds of miles. And virtually all the churches, I think all the churches that were founded in Paul's second missionary journey would have heard all about this and been impacted by it. You can imagine Christians that were traveling, merchants and missionaries traveling, and they're spreading the word because this is just so obvious how the gospel didn't just come to Thessalonica, it landed in Thessalonica, and it is having major ripple effects. And so that word is spreading um, so much that Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, we need not say anything. We usually like to talk about these things, but the word already beat us to this next location. I mean, it's very, very encouraging. Now think about what kind of impact their example would have, okay? 
He's saying your example has spread. It spread. All these churches now know about what God has done there. What? Like if you're a church in Corinth, you know, you're a believer in the church in Corinth, for example, or Philippi, right? Or Colossae. You're in one of these churches. You're, you're a faithful member in your local church and you're just grinding it out, trying to be faithful right where God's put you. And then you get this news about what the gospel did in Thessalonica. And the Egyptians didn't come there. It landed there and there's proof. These people are transformed. What effect would that have? I think it would fuel you in a number of ways, wouldn't it? It would fuel our worship because when we hear that, there would be this resonance in our own soul going, that's what happened to me. Yes, Lord, you did it again. You're still doing it, right? So just fuel our worship to the God who rescued us. It would also fuel our evangelism. Yes, Lord, thank you for this reminder that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So it's preached and it has an intrinsic power that when the spirit lays hold of it and presses it into a soul, people get transformed. Our gospel saves. So it would fuel our desire to want to share our faith with other people. It would also fuel, I think, our faithfulness. Okay. We've seen this even in our own church, hasn't it? So someone gets saved, right? And uh, they start getting after it. They start, they're growing a lot. You've been saved for a little while and you're watching their prayer life and you're going, okay, um, need to make some adjustments, right? Doesn't it do that? Their example spurs you on and makes you want to be more faithful. This example of the Thessalonians being transformed and their life of godliness is reaching the ears of people that have been maybe saved a little longer than they have. And they're going, I need to get after it. And that's, that's beautiful. It's meant to have that effect. And so it's having all these good effects. But here we have the heart of the report that's sounding forth. And uh, we're down the home stretch in the passage. I think some of the sweetest verses in the entire section, starting in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Okay, so all these believers are reporting now and spreading the word that when these missionaries came, how the gospel landed there. So the, they're reporting it. They themselves are reporting it. We don't even have to report it. And so... There were kind of reception we had among you Thessalonians. And then it says this about the report. And how you, I love this, and how you turned to God from idols. This report has gone everywhere, that you've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So here's the report. They turned. The gospel came and they turned. They turned an about face. This is language of repentance, right? They turned from idols, right? Idols are the things that we put equal to or above God. In those days, it took all kinds of physical manifestations. They're going into temples, worshiping little trinkets and statues and things like that that were meant to be stand-ins for gods that don't exist, right? but they were devoted to them. They had to make sure they were fed. They had to make sure that they were served, right? They had to make sure they, they put effort and energy into serving these idols, or you could say these God replacements, 
these enchanting escapes. That's what an idol is in law, right? They're the things that we run to instead of God, right? They can take a lot of different forms, can't they? So these God replacements, these enchanting escapes, these demonic distractions. I think that's a helpful phrase to think about because idols are satanic ploys to say these things will satisfy you. These things will meet your need. These things will rescue you. These things will make you feel better, right? This is what you need, but they're not God. And so Satan says endlessly, no, this one, okay, this one will do, okay, this one will meet your deepest needs. And he is very content to keep, you know, with great creativity, introducing us to another one, right? This is how Satan, in part, blinds the eyes of unbelievers. He keeps people blind through endlessly distracting them and enchanting them with these different kind of escapes from God and these different replacements. There's lots of different forms that contribute to the spiritual blindness. It's idols. They were enslaved to them. Listen to Galatians 4.8. Formally, because this is the story of the Galatians too, it says, Formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that, that by nature are not gods. See that? Like before, you know, before you knew God, before you came to Christ, you were enslaved to idols. Those things that by nature, they're not the true God, but you're enslaved to them because that's what you worshiped. They turned, the report says, from idols. That's all they knew. That's where they put all their eggs in one basket. That's what they were trusting in. It was no small thing. This was costly. Their families, their relatives, That's all they've known. That's what they did. They turned from idols to God, to the living and true God. I love that phrase because it's a contrast. The idols are dead. They're deaf. They're dumb, right? There's a lot of scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, that describe these idols, right? Like they have eyes but do not see, ears do not hear. They have throats but they don't breathe, you know, mouths but do not speak. And those who worship them become dumb and deaf and unhearing like them. That's what's said. But it says, but you turned from idols to God, to the living and true God um, who gave you his son to die for you and who raised his son from the dead. See how the text said, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son that he gave you to die, who raised him from the dead. Jesus, who delivers from the wrath to come. And so he provided the son to protect them from the wrath of God. And they believed. And God is going to keep good on his word. Listen to John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that you know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The report says that these Thessalonians, these once idol-worshiping pagans, have come to know the true God, the living God. They have eternal life because they found it in Jesus 
Christ. And so it says here that Jesus is the one who delivers from the wrath to come. There is a wrath that is coming. This is weighty. This is going to show up in this book about the coming of the Lord. It's going to show up multiple times. There is a wrath that's going to be revealed from heaven that is absolutely terrifying reality. Okay, There is a wrath that is coming, and it is justified, right? This is God's just response to human sin and rebellion against him. This is God's just response for people who for millennia have made God replacements and have made preferences that so have so belittled his glory, the glory of the one who made them. And um, so there's wrath that is coming. The good news is that there's a deliverer, one who has been particularly called commissioned to come as God's one only beloved son. And his mission was to rescue, to deliver, and to deliver from what? From sin, yes, but from wrath. And that's why his death on the cross was a propitiation. It was a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. So that wrath that's going to come at the end of the age and it's going to absolutely consume those who do not believe and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, that wrath, it's saying, for those who put their trust in Christ, has already fallen on Christ in our place so that we do not have to experience it, so that he delivers us from the wrath to come. And so it's very important this morning, as we're thinking about this text, for all of us to recognize that Jesus has provided this deliverer. And so I think the call for those who don't know Christ right now, those who are still worshiping idols and filling their lives with God replacements, is to say, turn, turn, like turn from idols to the living and true God and to his son, Jesus Christ. He will, he promises to deliver you from the wrath to come. He will deliver you. He will rescue. You will not experience one little bit of it if you find refuge in Jesus Christ. So flee, as John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come. And once you do, and you put your trust in Christ, and you're born again, look up. Look up. You look up to Jesus. You look around at people that know Jesus, that can help you grow, people that you can imitate until you are one who can be worthy of imitation so that others can imitate you. And so you continue the cycle with us. But know this about true conversion. If you truly put your faith in Christ, he will change your life. He will transform you. You can't have the same relationship with idols anymore. They have to go. You'll still be tempted to idolatry, but if you're truly born again, there'll be a deeper principle in your soul, pulling you away from idols and pushing you toward the true and the living God over and over again. And maybe you could summarize it this way. And this is how our text ends with these two glorious phrases. This is what it will look like if you're going to be a true follower of Christ. This is what it will look like for you if, you've been, if you're being transformed. Is There's two things that will mark you. And this gets at that question that I should be, what does God want you to be known for? As people who have turned from idols to the living and the true God, he wants you to be known for serving 
and for waiting. Right? How they turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven. These two things should mark us as believers. So if you want to walk away with like, what do I want to be known for? I want to be known as one who serves and one who waits. So tease that out for a moment as we close. Just by saying this, we were saved to serve. Last week, I spent the better part of the sermon um, unpacking what service looks like, affirming the church for all the beautiful things that God is doing, the works of faith, the labor of love, the, the, um, the steadfastness of hope that, that there's so many examples. And I know I missed some. I thought of some afterwards. Uh, and I know that many of you could fill in gaps too. And so I'm not going to rehearse all that, but let's just say it. we're saved for that. We're saved to serve. We're saved to pour ourselves out. We're always serving something or someone. The question is, what are we serving? Are we still serving idols? Are we serving just self? Or are we serving the living and true God? Galatians 5.13, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And remember who you're ultimately serving, right? You're ultimately serving. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not ultimately for men. We want to be serious about service. Romans 12, 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. We should be people who are marked by serving. And um, we should also be marked by waiting. Waiting, people who are waiting, waiting for, anticipating, longing for what? Ultimately, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day that he's going to split the skies. This is should what ma- this should be what makes us tick, you know. And I want to say this too, that sometimes the focus, you know, for people is just on like the coming, you know. But the reality is the coming is going to be a very short window. It's important. It's going to change everything. But it's what he's coming to usher in, you know, is a huge part of what we're longing for. His coming is going to usher in so much, so much greater. So I get concerned sometimes that people that claim to be like um, end times gurus, and then they go on endlessly with endless speculation about the exact timing or all the things, and they're now the experts on all the signs in every way, and they go outside of scripture, and they, they think that they can pin everything that's happening in the world as a sign of the time, you know, I'm going, hey, you might be right. Sometimes you might be wrong, but I'm just wondering about this. And this is just my, my observation is many people that just live in that world and binge in that world. I just wonder sometimes, like I haven't met too many of them that are serving and waiting. Like they're too busy trying to find the latest little morsel of speculation than they are to actually be serving in a local church. And just humbly blessing somebody, you know, washing the feet of the saints, caring for someone who's in need, lifting a chin of a weary pilgrim. They're too busy studying the end times. And I'm just going, this is why we have to study a book like First Thessalonians is because some people need to be snapped back into reality. Don't claim to be like end time scholar if you're not even serving and waiting. Like this is what it was designed to do for you. This is what it's designed to make you. Or maybe you're just more godly than the apostles. Because who are these people emulating? 
the apostles, right? Paul and company, they were marked by serving and waiting. Simple things, but powerful. Life transfer moment. Don't be so busy, you know, that you're not serving and waiting. This is what we're called to do. This is what we're longing for. You know, I can help but think about how um, our son Titus, he's just got this habit right now. He has an unwavering hope. Okay, little Titus. He has an unwavering hope that I, I just kind of need you to know about right now. Okay? His unwavering hope has to do with puppies. Okay? Okay, so any of us in the family can say, outside, outside. And his, you know what, his initial, his, his knee-jerk response is going to be, oof, oof, oof. That's his way of describing the puppy, right? They go, oof, right? Yeah? And so anytime it's outside or he'll point out of our window that faces me, he'll be like, oof, oof, because puppies walk by there sometimes. It's always just oof. Now, let's be honest, in the winter, people are like hibernating. I think the dogs are too. You don't see that many of them. And so it's like, I would say like one out of 30 times we go outside, he actually sees a puppy. But his hope is unwavering. <laughs> he is undaunted. Like he is just like, no, there's going to be a puppy out there. Go outside. Oof. And like he's so jacked up about it that I'd be like, hey, buddy, did you go outside today? Oof, oof, oof. And like, I know you didn't see a puppy out there. But he is just so focused on it, right? Such a small percentage of the time. But this little guy does not lose heart, right? In, in a sense, so we can say outside and he goes, puppies, you know? And when we want to, and when we hear Jesus, we should be thinking, is he coming? He's coming. He's coming. Like we're so, that's just our instinct to just be so excited about the thought of him coming and what he is going to usher in, brothers and sisters. Because when he comes, it's going to change everything. There's this phrase later on in the book of Thessalonians that I'm going to love preaching on, but I can't help but speak it because it's been on my heart so much. But it says, then we will always be with the Lord. That's what it's about. Not just that he's coming in a moment, that we will always be. Those who are trusting Christ, we will always be with the Lord when he comes back again. Right now, we are in a heart-wrenching, long-term, long-distance relationship. But when he comes, we will always be with the Lord. That's enough preaching, I think. Uh, let's pray. And I want to encourage the congregation to pray. So we're going to go into a time of corporate prayer now. This is a chance for us to respond to God in light of all that he wants us to have. Strong assurance, worthy examples, good reputations that are marked and known for serving and waiting. So I'm going to let uh, these brothers are going to have mics going around. And it's going to be a little different just because we have to kind of raise hands. But these guys are going to be looking for you. So... Um, don't be shy. Be, be bold. It's going to encourage all of us to pray together in light of these things. And uh, so who would be first? Can it be someone? Oh, Lenny's going to start. And then just have hands going up so these guys can run the mics.